As I look out this morning, I see a big crowd here today, and that's always exciting. I see all kinds of people. I see older people and younger people. I see black and white, rich and poor, people from various backgrounds with various talents and abilities and gifts. I see people who look very pleasant, and you've got a smile on your face. And as I look out, I also see people who look like they ate a bowl of lemons for breakfast, and you came into this world with your arms crossed. I see people out there who, you look very alert, you are refreshed after that extra hour of sleep that you got, and I also see people, I'm going to give you another 10, 15 minutes, and you'll be nodding off. You do that. Your eyes will start to close, your head will start to nod. I'll be sure to add a few extra slaps on the podium for your benefit today. All kinds of people gathered here together today, but what brings us together? What is the cause of this diverse gathering? Well, most importantly, as I look out today, I see saved people. I see people who've been saved by God. And that's what has brought us together despite all of our differences. This is really an extraordinary gathering of people. We are here because we have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by God through Jesus, not by our good works, not by our faithful church attendance, not by our acts of generosity, not by our meritorious deeds throughout our lives, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. I'm looking out this morning at a crowd of many saved people. This morning, we launch into a new mini-series in our bigger one-word series, which is going throughout the year. And we're talking about, in the month of November, God's salvation. The way that He works graciously in our lives. And the words that we will consider are, well, this word propitiation, which we would have a lesson on next week were it not for all in one. You will be reading about this word. And this is the idea that God's wrath has been appeased. That we don't have to face the wrath of God because Jesus took our place. So you won't hear a sermon about that word, but you will be reading in your devotional book about it. The week after next, the word is redemption. And we'll talk about this idea of being bought back by God. And then atonement. The idea of being reconciled with God. And lastly, on the final Sunday of November, we'll talk about the word crucify. And we'll talk about Jesus' crucifixion. And how that act on the cross makes all of these words possible, makes salvation possible. Makes our propitiation and our redemption and our atonement a possibility. And the word for this morning justification. As I look out at the crowd today, I see people who have been justified. And what that simply means is, you, if you are a baptized believer, if you've turned away from your sins, if you've been washed in the, that watery grave of baptism, you've been made right in God's eyes. God has reckoned you, not based on your works, but based on your faith and by His grace, He has reckoned you as righteous. That righteousness has been imputed to you despite your sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified. If you're a baptized believer, that's what you are. 
That's your status. You've been made right in God's eyes. You've been justified. This morning, I want us to talk about a woman. Her story is on the pages of Scripture. And she was justified in the sight of God. But significantly, she was justified by Jesus Himself. Jesus in the flesh when He walked this earth. Her story is found in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, why don't you grab your Bible or a Bible if you see one sitting around and go with me to Luke chapter 7. You can just lay it open to Luke 7 in your lap and we'll be referring to that passage throughout our time together. Jesus to this woman, face to face, He looks at her and He says to her, In verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And the people who overheard him say that, well, they had a problem with it. And they questioned it. And and they said, in verse 49, they began saying to themselves, who is this who can forgive sins? Because they knew that only God had the power to forgive sins. And so they're wondering, who gave this man the authority to forgive sins? That authority belongs to God alone. Exactly. Because this man is not just a man. He's much more than a man. He's the Son of God. And therefore, he has the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins on whomever he pleases. And that's why Luke uh, records this for us, so that we may reflect on who this man is, on the implications of his existence. Who is this who forgives sins? Only God can do that. Exactly. He looks at this woman and he says, your sins are forgiven, but that's not all. He continues in verse 50. And he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's your faith that has made you well. And you may go in peace. And peace, this word, a lot, it's a multifaceted word. A lot of ideas here. He doesn't, simply mean you can go and live a conflict-free life. In fact, he may not mean that at all, because sometimes following Jesus puts us at odds with others. What he means here is you can walk away from me and you can be at peace with God. There can be peace and tranquility in your relationship with God because your sins have been removed from you. And this word also means you can walk away from here a whole and healthy person. This comes from the Hebrew uh, word shalom. You can be be the person you were intended to be. Whole, healthy, full, at peace. Jesus pronounces her sins forgiven. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And listen, if you're a baptized believer today, Jesus has spoken these words over you. Did you know that? Do you need a reminder of that today? That if you're sitting out there and you've confessed faith in Christ and you've been baptized into His name, then God Himself has said to you, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus has spoken those words over your life. Do you believe it? Are you living like it? Are you living in that victorious state of of having your sins washed away from you? of living a whole and healthy life in service to your Lord because of His grace. And if you have not been baptized, these are words that you have not yet heard. And I wonder if you realize the implications of that. Having yet to hear these words from God from the mouth of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. If you haven't confessed faith in Christ, if you haven't been baptized 
in his name, then these words have not been spoken over you. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. These are promises that have yet to to be delivered to you. And so if you haven't committed your life to, to Jesus Christ and you see these words, you should want to hear these words from the mouth of God. I hope that you do. And I hope that before our time has ended this morning, if there's somebody here who, who, who hasn't become a child of God and hasn't heard these words spoken into their life, I hope that you'll decide to do that. And I hope you'll be able to hear these words as those of us who have been saved have heard these words, as this woman heard these words. Now there's more that you should know about this woman. Our story begins in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus said yes to the invitation, and he goes to the Pharisee's house, and he takes his plate at the table. Now, when we often see the Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, on the pages of the Gospels, they're often at odds with Jesus. And so the setup here shows us that something interesting is about to happen, because These, Jesus and the Pharisees often did not get along. Jesus was not afraid to confront the Pharisees and their self-righteousness and their misunderstanding of the law. So you know, if they're going to dine together, there's going to be some pretty intense conversation. And you know, if a Pharisee is having a dinner party, most likely he's only going to invite people like himself. People who are wholly devoted to the law in the way that he understands it. People who, according to the purity codes and according to how people saw things, they were squeaky clean. They were morally upright. So we already know that this is not going to be Jesus' kind of dinner party. Because who did Jesus like to dine with? He liked to get together with the outcasts, with the misfits, with the marginalized, with known sinners. Those are the people that he preferred to dine with, not people like this. So Jesus already appears out of place around this Pharisee's table. What will happen next? Here's what happens next. We're introduced to this woman we've been talking about in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, they would have been reclined around the table, lying on their sides. Their feet would have been extended out from the table like spokes around a wheel. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I think we have an image up here. This woman, we're introduced to her here. We learn a few things, but not a lot. We don't learn her name, for instance. Jesus is, of course, named in the story. A little bit later, we learn the name of the Pharisee with whom Jesus is dining in his home. His name is Simon. This woman doesn't get a name. She's a nameless woman. She comes into this home, most certainly uninvited, She probably did not have a place at this table. She hadn't received an invitation to the dinner party like Jesus and the other Pharisees had. But in she bursts through the door and she kneels down at the feet of Jesus and she begins performing this shocking gesture. And it would have been shocking 
for many reasons. It was scandalous, for instance, for, for women in this culture to let down their hair in the presence of men, which she does. Everything about this scenario just feels improper, inappropriate, messy. She's crying. She's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, washing His feet with her tears, and she's kissing His feet. You can, you can just almost feel how uncomfortable the people in the room were, especially those Pharisees, at this woman's gesture. The whole thing just, it, it, it's quite the opposite from the squeaky clean image that the Pharisees would want to project. But most notably, the text makes it clear she's a sinner. Luke spells that out for us right off the bat. As he's introducing this woman, he makes clear to us that she in the community is a known sinner. And we don't know her sin. We don't know the kind of stuff she had been involved in. That became common knowledge. Maybe she was a known adulteress. Maybe a promiscuous woman. Maybe not involved in in some type of sexual sin. Maybe something else. We don't know. All we know is, everybody recognized this lady as a sinner. John Newton was a British sailor and he was a member of the the British Royal Navy. His first experience serving aboard a slave ship was sometime in the 1740s. The ship was called the Pegasus and it would carry goods to West Africa and it would trade those goods for slaves to be shipped to the colonies in the Caribbean and North America. He was first mate aboard the slave ship Brownlow And then he made three voyages as the captain of slave ships in the 1750s as captain. He was instrumental in the capture, in the gross mistreatment, in the enslavement of thousands of Africans. There are a lot of words that we could use to describe the dehumanization and the cruelty towards so many that John Newton was personally involved in. But here's a word. Sinful. The activity that he was involved in was sinful. He was a sinner. And there are a lot of words that we could use to describe the activities of our past, the wor- our words and our deeds, before we were justified by faith in Christ. A lot of words that we could use, but here's one. Sinful. We were sinners. We were no less separated from God by our actions than John Newton was by his actions We were just like this nameless woman who busts into the dinner party, who begins to wash Jesus' feet. We were sinners. We are sinners. She's a sinner. And listen to the Pharisees' reaction to this woman, to what she's doing. It comes at verse 39. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were really who he said he was... He would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. It is unclean for a sinful woman like this to be touching uh, somebody, a man, a prophet. And if he were a prophet worth his salt, if he really was who he said he was, he would know what kind of stuff she's been involved in and he wouldn't let her anywhere near him if he really were the Christ. If he really were this teacher, the Son of God. He wouldn't let her touch him. She's a sinner. Sinner. Unlike Jesus, he's only interested in 
bringing these sin charges against her in condemning her. According to him, there's not a place for her in Jesus' company. There's no room for her at the table. It reminds me of the questions that Paul poses in Romans chapter 8. We heard this text earlier. In verses 33 and 34 when he asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? You know, even after we've been justified, even after our sins have been washed away, even after we've been ushered into the kingdom of God, there are still those who are eager to bring charges from our past against us. Satan, of course, it's his favorite activity to remind us of our past, to whisper in our ear that we're unworthy of God's love, to remind us that we'll never be different than our worst sins, that we could never be loved unconditionally by God. That's his job. He's an expert at it. He's been doing it from the very beginning and he's active in our lives today, whispering these lies into our ears, reminding us of our past before we came to Jesus, bringing the charges of sin against us. There are others who will do that. Outsiders? You folks think you're better than me? You think you're special in God's sight? You think God forgives you and what you've done? Sometimes even our consciences will testify against us. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and we can't let go of the past that God has so willingly forgiven. And let's be honest, there's no shortage of charges against us. If we sat down and began tallying up all the ways that we've sinned, and disobeyed and dishonored God, the list would just go on and on and on. We would go through reams and reams of paper. There's no shortage of charges that Satan or outsiders or even ourselves can bring against us. The sins multiply. In his later years, John Newton, he, he came to see the error of his ways and he was, he was haunted by the ghosts of his past, by his involvement in the horrific slave trade. In 1788, he published a pamphlet, it was called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade, in which he made, and I quote, a confession which comes too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Much of John Newton's regret over his involvement in slavery came from the fact that he was a Christian. And he served as a preacher during his involvement. He wrote this about his faith in 1763. He said, I was greatly deficient in many respects. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. You see, this man later in his life, John Newton, he was overwhelmed with his sinfulness, haunted by the ghosts of the enslaved Africans that he stole from their homes and Ship them overseas. The charges of his past sins were ever before him, constantly reminded of all the ways that he had disobeyed God. The Pharisee here is eager to bring sin charges against this lady. She's a sinner. And if Jesus knew that, why would he let her touch him? She's unclean. She's unworthy to be in Jesus' presence if he is who he says he is. The Pharisee thinks sinner, but not Jesus. Not in this story and not with us. That's not what he thinks. Jesus instead brings the offer of salvation 
through faith. This lady comes to Jesus in faith. She's weeping because she senses that he's somebody special, that he is the Son of God. She bows before him out of a sense of gratitude and reverence, more than these Pharisees did, more than his host did, and Jesus brings that to their attention, and he mentions her faith. She's saved here. She's justified by Jesus himself because of her faith. He says, your faith has made you well, and your sins are forgiven, and you can go in peace. And through Jesus, our numerous charges are dropped. Our sins forgiven. We can be justified. And Paul reminds us how in Romans chapter 8. And this is our text today. Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 and 32. Listen to Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now that's a pretty famous verse. I bet you've heard it a lot. If God's for us, who can be against us? But I want you to hear it with fresh ears within the context of, the te- of our passage this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his son. God gave up his son, allowed him to die for all of us. We, through this passage and many others, are privy to information that this sinful woman did not have in Luke chapter 10, or in Luke chapter 7, rather. And so how much more should we adore God knowing this? Knowing that not only did Jesus live, He died for my sins, for your sins. And that leads Paul to say, if God was willing to do that, how much more is God willing to bless us in addition to the sacrifice of His Son. And Paul goes on here uh, with verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will bring any charge against us? Oh, they'll try. Satan will try. People outside the faith will try. Sometimes we'll even question our salvation. Sometimes we'll even question God's love for us. But Paul says it's God who does the justifying. So trust in Him to do it. Trust that He has done it. And don't listen to those voices that say you're not good enough. God will never love you. God would never save you because of what you've done. It is God who justifies It is God who makes right because of His grace and our faith. Those who abide in Christ will never be found guilty. Those who live according to the gospel will never be condemned because look at what Christ has done and is doing for us. He died. He was raised. He's at the right hand of God and He's interceding for us. He is intervening on our behalf by His blood. His blood, as we confess our sins, is continually cleansing our sins as we go throughout this life as believers. Look at what Jesus has done. We have been justified by the highest court, the highest tribunal, God Himself. And if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no enemy 
That can outshine God. That can outdo what God has done. There was a movie in 2006, and it chronicles much of the extraordinary life of a man named William Wilberforce. He was the abolitionist who was responsible for the end of British involvement in the slave trade. And Wilberforce's childhood preacher was John Newton, the slave trader. And in the movie, there's an emotional scene when Wilberforce goes to visit his old friend and he discovers that John Newton has detailed records of his terrible slave ship days. His eyesight is gone. He's, he's an elderly man. His health is worsening. And he tells Wilberforce, you've got to use my personal records. The names, the, the ship records, the ports, the people. You've got to use this, this, these documents to abolish the slave trade. He says, everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly, he says to William Wilberforce. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I remember those two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. You know, the name of that movie is Amazing Grace. And it's named for the famous hymn that was written by John Newton, the man we've been talking about. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. In the scene, Newton says to Wilberforce, didn't I write that? And Wilberforce says, yes, you did. And Newton says, well, now at last, it's true. As I look out this morning, I see people who have been justified. I see people who've been saved. But as I look out, I also see those who have yet to receive the gift of salvation from God through Jesus Christ. And it's not for lack of love or effort on God's part. He has done everything He can possibly do to extend the invitation of salvation and life through Jesus. He's laid it all on the table for the taking. It's for lack of willingness on yours to submit to Him. That's what's keeping you from receiving the most precious gift there is. And let me tell you, when you come and you repent and you confess that Jesus is Lord and you decide to go down into that water for the forgiveness of your sins as the church of Christ, as the church belonging to the Jesus that we read about in this story, we, like Him, will not treat you according to your past sin, but according to God's present grace. Because let's face it, we've all got a past. We do. And we've all been freely justified. Paul talks about that with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6. He, he says, the unrighteous are... They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. People who are involved in sexual immorality and idolatry, people who are adulterers and people who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's speaking to the Christians. And he says, some of you were like that. Some of you were involved in those things. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, made right 
in the eyes of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. You, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what kind of sinful activity you've been involved in, you can be justified by the blood of Jesus Christ this very day. There's a place for you in the company of Jesus. Just as there was a place for that woman. You're a great sinner. And you say, how, how could you say, you don't know me. How could you say that to me? <laughs> I know it to be true because I'm a great sinner. And we're all great sinners. But we serve a great Savior. Do you want to begin a life of service to Him today? You can come and have your sins washed away. Has your life veered from faithfulness and devotion to God? You can come back to the fold. You can rededicate your life to God. Are you struggling with some other burden that you've been carrying around? You need to share it with your brothers and sisters. I invite you to come right now also as we stand and sing together.